0: <clears throat> All right. If you'd open your Bibles to the Book of Deuteronomy, we're continuing our study through the the last book of the Pentateuch, the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter two. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about Deuteronomy. I uh, just want to give you a, a quick update as to where we are. If you remember in your yellow stock card. It showed that this is really the whole book of Deuteronomy is like a Caesarean treaty document. It's a covenant document. And the first four chapters, chapter one through verse or chapter four, verse 43, uh, the first four chapters really are part of the introduction to this covenant document, where uh, the 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 higher ruler, the Caesarean, would he would basically explain why this covenant is good for the underlings. Why the lower kings really are blessed to be part of this covenant with this higher king. So this is a covenant renewal, and we're in chapter two. So we're still in the prologue. It's this is the part of of a document where uh, the the high king would basically expound on all of his goodness and all of his faithfulness to the lower kings. And we are in the middle of that explanation right now. It's just prior to the death of Moses. It's a renewal of the covenant made at Mount Sinai with this new generation. The old generation is gone. They're all dead. So this is 38, 39, 40 years later, just prior to entering the promised land from the east. So if you look at the the map, I hesitate again to put inserts because I know that they're so interesting, uh, more interesting than probably what you're hearing from the pulpit sometimes, but take a look at the map very quickly. Uh, If you look down where it says Midian, just above that is Jabal Allah's. I believe that is Mount Sinai, um, the alternate view of Mount Sinai. I believe that's the actual place where it is. So that is where Moses had lived before he went back to Egypt. He lived in Midian. He lived around Mount Sinai, Jabal Allah's, and that's where the covenant was initially given to them. Then they went north. We're going to read about this in chapter 2. They went north from Midian to Kadesh Barnea, just below Amalek. You see the Amalek? At Kadesh Barnea, God told the people to go into the promised land and take it. And that's where they grumbled and they complained. And then God said, no, go back to the wilderness for 40 years. So they wandered down around uh, Eb- ezion geber and around Midian and around the Sinai Peninsula. It's all wilderness. They wandered for 38 years. So today we'll see them coming back up to the north through Edom and Moab and Ammon, north of the Dead Sea, heading up into the the blue and the yellow, which will eventually be Manasseh's inheritance. All the way up, we believe, to Damascus, um, Sihon and Og's territory. So right now, at the beginning of chapter 2, chapter 1 ends with the rejection of God, the spiritual rejection of God. They would not go up into the promised land like God had said. That's where chapter 1 ends. Moses is recounting all this for the new generation, basically to say, don't be like them. Don't be like your fathers who rejected God and then had to suffer for 38, 39, 40 years in the wilderness and die. Don't be like them. And after they rejected God, they were turned south again, away from the promised land. And then in chapter 2, in two verses, we see 38 or 39 years of history, in verses 1 and verses 2 of chapter chapter 2. He says they went south away from Kadesh Barnea, and then God says, you've wandered long enough, turn north. So he summarizes um, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus uh, as well, in just two verses. We see 38 years of history. And they begin heading north again. So, with all that to say, chapter 2 is the recounting of The Israelites now after 38 years turning back north and after 40 years they'll enter the promised land. He's encouraging them to remember their history. Again, this is directed, all of Deuteronomy is directed to this new generation. So Moses is trying to get them to remember the history of their their forefathers. This is chapter 2. God's holy and inspired word. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. As the Lord told me, this is after the disobedience, they turned south. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of a foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you are going through this great wilderness, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath to Izion-Geber. And we turned and went into the direction of the wilderness of Moab. So if you look at the map just very quickly, they're heading north, but they're not going right through Edom. They're basically going kind of around Edom toward Moab into into the wilderness. Uh, Their ultimate destination, of course, is to be on the river Jordan across uh, north of the Dead Sea, but south of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and... Continuing in verse 8, And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephim. But the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites also lived in Seir. Formerly the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook of Zared So we went over the brook Zared And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zared was 38 years. Until the entire generation, that is the men of war, perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession." It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. They dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, The Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up. Set out on your journey. Go over the land, over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us. We defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time. And we devoted to destruction every city men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves, with the plunder of the cities that we captured, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, as far as, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon, you did not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok, and the cities of the hill country whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Well, may God add His blessing to the reading of His Holy Word. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we see Your Word before us and we pray that You would give us wisdom. We pray that we would be encouraged by this, this historical account of Your people that we would see that the faithful God who gave the people into the hand of Israel is also the faithful God who watches over us and protects the church. We pray in Jesus' name that we would be encouraged and that this Word would, would prosper in Your hands. In Jesus' name, Amen. So notice how many times over and over and over again where the Lord our God gave into our hands. The Lord our God gave into our hands. Again and again. We see the primary character in chapter 2 being the Lord God. Not Moses, not the Israelites, not the enemy, the Lord God. This makes sense. In a treaty document, the suzerain is going to explain all of his goodness and all of his power to the people that he calls to serve him. Indeed, this is all true. God did give all of these peoples into the Israelites. He defeated all of them. The people were called to trust and obey God. That's really the title of the sermon or really to see how God's faithfulness inspires our own lives to action. Inspires our own lives to live faithfully for Him. I want to talk about God's faithfulness. I want to talk about God's sovereignty. And then I want to talk about our responsibility in light of God's faithfulness and His sovereignty. First, let's look at God's faithfulness to Israel. We see all through this chapter, God being faithful to His own people. Look at verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So positively, God has been faithful to Israel. He's carried them through the, the wilderness of their wandering. And You remember in First Peter, He calls our lives a wilderness. He's comparing the Christian life To the Israelites, He provided for them. They lacked nothing. In Deuteronomy 29, we read that their clothes never wore out. The sandals never wore off their feet. I would love those sandals. I would love those those clothes. Can you imagine only needing one pair of clothes? I mean, some of you guys are like, I do only need one pair of clothes. I have a shirt that I've worn for 30 years. My wife hates it, but I could live in that shirt forever. It has not been preserved like the clothes that the Israelites had. But God preserved them. He cared for them. It's the same care that He has for us. Not exactly the same, of course, but it's the same level of care. He cared for their shoes. Don't don't let that be lost on you. There is no prayer that you lift up that God does not care to answer. Oh, that's a small prayer. I'm not going to lift that up. That's a lie. Every prayer. Lift it up. If it's not worth the words that are spoken, the Holy Spirit can use that prayer in some other way. Lift up your prayers. He cared for them. He also led them by fire at night and cloud by day. A friend of mine lives uh, in Arizona. He said he had, I think, 32 120 plus days or something like that this summer. Crazy hot And then one day, a cloud came over and it blocked the sun for half of the day. And he was Marco Poloing. He was sending me a message and he said, I cannot believe how much I love this cloud. And I can only imagine the Israelites in the wilderness having a cloud cover them by day. I never thought of that. He cared for every need. He fed them with manna every day. He gave them water from a rock He was literally with them and that was the greatest blessing. He was with them. He was the shepherd. The good shepherd who was leading them and He was faithful to them. I think the application for us is plain. He was also faithful negatively to carry out the sentence on their fathers. Verse 14, Moses is recounting this that the children needed to hear. God is faithful to do what He said, even to bring punishment upon those who require it. From the time of our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of Zered it was 38 years. The entire generation, all the men of war had perished from the camp. Just as the Lord had sworn to them. God's faithful to His promises. The hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. That has to be one of the most terrifying phrases in all of Scripture. Whenever you read, the Lord was against someone. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. These people were the ones who grumbled in their tents, remember? They said that God actually had brought them to the promised land just to kill them. They forgot all of His goodness to them. They thought that God meant to harm them. And God, in the end, did kill them for their unbelief. And if you think about it, this really was a blessing to the country. It was a blessing to the people of Israel not to go into battle with a bunch of doubters and backbiters. They went into battle with people who trusted God. The unbelieving grumblers were cast away. The church was purified. The physical army was stronger, but the spiritual church was stronger as well. So God was faithful to His people. Amen. I love reading about God's faithfulness. It's everywhere in His Word. But what's more spectacular, I believe, is looking at God's faithfulness to the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. Who are these people? And why is God faithful to them? It makes no sense. Let's look at the Edomites in verse 4. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau. And they will be afraid of you. Do not contend with them. Be very careful. I'm not going to give you any of their land. Not even for the sole of your foot to tread on. Because I've given it to Esau as a possession. So the Edomites, if you look at your map, the Edomites do not live in the land of Canaan. land of Canaan is all that colorful part. The Edomites live south and east of the land of Canaan. This is where Esau's relatives live. All of Esau's descendants. Who's Esau? Remember, Jacob had one brother, Esau. Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. Why was Esau not the child of promise? I don't know. I'm just going to take Larry's take on it. I don't know. But he was not. Did that mean God showed no grace to Esau? Absolutely not. The only reason the Edomites are treated differently from the Canaanites, there's two reasons. He's a descendant of Abraham, and God is honoring Abraham by honoring the descendants of Abraham. And God had pronounced a blessing on Isaac through Esau. In Genesis 27, Isaac, his father, remember when Esau said, My father, my father, don't you have even one blessing for me? And Isaac said, okay, I've got a blessing for you. Away from the fatness of the earth will your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. That's where Esau lives. That's Edom. It's a desert. But it was his desert. It was his gift from God. His possession given by God he was not the son of promise but the prophetic utterance of god's word by isaac would be honored by the lord he was inspired by the lord so moses reminds the israelites the edomites are your brothers they're your, literally your cousins but they're your brothers they're descendants of abraham you don't fight with them god's faithful even to the edomites His faithfulness cannot fail. But He's also faithful to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Verse 8, Do not harass Moab. I will not give you any of their land. I've given R to the people of Lot for a possession. Verse 19, The people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. I will not give you any of the land as a possession. I've given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. The sons of Lot... So Lot had two sons, Ammon and Moab, or the the, the descendants are called the Ammonites and the Moabites. Do you remember how Ammon and Moab were born? It was incest. Lot's daughters got him drunk and then they slept with him. So certainly God doesn't approve of incest. It's horrible. In Deuteronomy we'll read that it's worthy of death. Death. But he still honors the descendants of Lot. We read in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man, and he's also a relation to Abraham. Do you see that the blessing of Abraham is overflowing to people who just happened to be around? These cousins had also been given a land for possession. So sure were the promises of God and His faithfulness to Abraham. They abound more than anyone had ever imagined. The promises of God for us are just as sure and trustworthy. They can never be altered by any man. You need to know that when you read something in the Word of God about the church, about you as a Christian, when you read Romans 8, when you read Ephesians 1 and 2, when you read your most favorite part of the Scriptures... And you think to yourself, is that true? It's absolutely true. It will all come to pass if God made the promises to pagan peoples come true. If He he fulfilled and honored the faithfulness to Abraham through His relatives so that not even His chosen people could touch their property, how much more will He bless His own people? Will He bless you? Called by His... Own name. Every promise of the Bible finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. As you trust Christ, you cannot help but see the promises of God fulfilled in your own life. I'm not talking health and wealth. I'm talking being a whole man, having shalom in your life. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever you should be certain that the promises of God will never fail. He will never leave you or forsake you. When he says that, he means it. When he says you've been adopted by the blood of Jesus, he means it. When he says you've been justified, he means it. Don't listen to the the attacks of the enemy when Satan tempts you to despair and reminds you of all of your sin. Don't listen. You are a a beloved son or daughter of God. You're beloved and cherished because of Jesus. And that means the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost love you with an unending love. It has no end. It's eternal. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from His will. He is coming again. You can believe all of the Gospel, all of the Scripture. It's all true. Because God says it. His promises, His faithfulness will never fail. This is what Moses wanted to remind the Israelites before they went into the promised land. Trust your faithful God. He has not failed you. In 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, He's always been there for you. Even in your rebellion, He has sustained you. So trust the faithfulness of God. But secondly, let's talk about His sovereignty over the nations. I love reading through the Gospel of John. All the Gospels are wonderful. Of course, you read the the life of Jesus. And in John, what you find is that Jesus is walking on the earth as a sovereign king. He doesn't wear a crown. He doesn't look like the kings of the earth did at that time. But He walks His life with such confidence He owns this place. He's in complete control. You never see Jesus panicking. You never see Jesus uncertain as to what to say. You never see Jesus fooled by anybody. He has no fear of any man. I just read when He cleared the temple. Can you imagine? he's the very beginning of His ministry in the Gospel of John, He walks into the temple. this, This massive temple built by Herod over 46 years. And He walks into the temple and the court of the Gentiles had been just set up as a a Walmart for temple worship. It was filled with all kinds of money changers and stuff for sale and everyone's vying for your business. And Jesus walks into that place and He starts throwing tables over. And He makes a whip with cords. Can you imagine Him sitting down and just taking some cords and slowly braiding together a whip to punish all of these people desecrating his father's house. They asked him, by what authority are you doing this? We know the authority. It was his house. He owned this place. He taught with authority. He's always casting out demons. He's healing people. He's he's even laying down his own life. He says, no one takes my life from me. I'm laying it down. And I'm going to take it up again. Jesus was sovereign on his sojourner on the earth. His his thirty three years on the earth, he walked the earth as the God man. But we see here in chapter two of Deuteronomy that God is also in complete control of all that goes on. The Israelites may not see God's hand exactly working, just as in our lives we don't see God's hand really almost ever. Directly doing anything, working in ways that we can go, oh, I prayed for Kari to be healed, and at that very moment she was healed. That doesn't happen. But God may heal Kari in some other way, some other day. Or Jim McGowan or all of the other people we pray for for healing. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Even though you do not see his hand, he is working. He's working in the lives of the Israelites, to accomplish His own plan. and all of these foreign powers, we read about God's sovereignty. First, I think it's fascinating that there were great, giant people who lived in the land, and God used other nations before the Israelites ever showed up to kill them all and send them out. We see that in verse 10. The Amim formerly lived here. They were giants. But the people of Esau sent them out, killed them all. Then the Rephaim formerly lived there. But the Ammonites killed them all and sent them out. This is all happening before Israel ever showed up. God's preparing the land for the Israelites to come and enter. And they had no idea it was even happening. God orchestrated the events of history before the Israelites for His own purposes. He used Esau and Ammon and Moab and even the Philistines, the Caffarites we read were used by God to destroy giants before the Israelites showed up. His sovereign hand is always at work. And the movement of these peoples was all part of His plan. It made me think today about one of the biggest issues we see in our own country is millions of immigrants coming through the southern border It's estimated that since our president took over, 7 million immigrants have come through the southern border. Can you imagine? 7 million illegally entering our country. A country without borders is not a country. It's frustrating to law-abiding citizens. Our taxes are going to care for them, educate them, and they're illegally entering our country. Not to mention in Texas, especially the property destroyed and the harm done by the worst element of that population. But here's the thing. It may be completely immoral. It may be illegal. You may not like it. But this massive shift in population, do you think it's random? Do you think God's hand is not at work in some way to bring this people into the most Christian nation on the earth? Do you not think that God may be doing something that we do not see? Certainly, I don't support any illegal activities, but despite the maybe sinister designs of those who would let this happen, God is at work. Did they come to destroy America? I don't know. Did they come because God wanted them to hear the Gospel? I hope so. They're coming to the very center of Christendom, to America, to hear the Gospel, the most Gospel-saturated place in the world, and God brought them here? I don't like illegal immigration, but I like my God. And I can see that He may use this for His own glory. And who knows what it will look like in two, three, four generations. Just like the Israelites showed up and something completely different had happened. And then Sihon. We see God's sovereign power in the work of changing the heart of this king to make his heart obstinate and to harden his spirit so that they would be destroyed. Sihon, where did he live? If you look at your map, he lived kind of in that yellow area, that blue and that yellow area to the east of the Jordan River where eventually Manasseh and Gad, I believe, would eventually settle all the way up to Damascus. Sihon and Og were over there. God hardened his heart. You remember in Isaiah 40 where God looks down at the the leaders of the world and they're all insects. He sees nothing but insects, grasshoppers. They're nothing to him. He turns the hearts of leaders like water in his hand. And for his own purpose, he hardened Sihon's heart that he might give them into the hand of Israelites. Now, none of us like hearing those words that God hardens hearts. And we immediately want to charge God with injustice. Romans 9 addresses this very thing. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then he mentions Pharaoh, someone else whose heart was hardened by God. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Then you will say, why then does he find fault? Who can resist him? As we heard this morning, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? We can be certain that no one was ever hardened who actually wanted to be righteous. Those people don't exist. Nobody wants to be righteous. But we know that God's purposes are always good and righteous and just. So when our flesh rises up saying, that's not fair, how can you harden this man? What you're really saying is, I would be more fair. I'm smarter than that. I would not do it quite that wrongly. What a wicked thought. God hardened a wicked man's heart to accomplish a great purpose. That's all we need to know. But it also brings to our own minds our own situation. Have you ever wondered why our own leaders seem so obstinate, wicked, hard, making stupid and short-sighted decisions? Why? Why is that happening? I don't know. But God knows, and He's at work. He's using every king and every leader to accomplish something. And He always has an eye on His own people, the church. He's not going to leave us. He's our king. He's our shepherd. He's our God. So not only does He sovereignly move nations, not only does He sovereignly move the hearts of leaders, but He also changes the attitudes of peoples. This is all so encouraging, especially in our day. He changes the attitudes of entire peoples. Look at verse 25. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under this whole heaven. On the peoples who are under the whole heaven. Who shall hear the report of you and tremble in anguish because of you. He changed the whole attitude of everyone who heard about Israel. We know this is true because in Joshua, Rahab tells the spies, oh, we've heard about you. We're all terrified. And even the Philistines in 1 Samuel, they had heard all about the Lord's fierce anger against the Egyptians. We don't see God's hand working directly all the time, but His hand is there. We can trust His goodness, His faithfulness, and His providence. God had orchestrated the Israelites' entrance into the Promised Land He also orchestrates all things for our good and for His own glory. Why? Because He's the King. And He owns the universe. He created it. A few quick Scriptures. It's all through the Bible. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. It all belongs to God. That's saying the earth the atmosphere, and then all of space. Everything out there belongs to God. Psalm 115, verse 3 Our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Job 12 23, He makes nations great, He destroys them, He enlarges nations, He leads them away. Ephesians 1:11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So first we see that God's faithful to all of His promises. He made promises even to Edom and Ammon and Moab. and In honor of Abraham, He honored all of them. He's a promise-keeping God. And His redemptive promises are also true. We have great confidence that everything written about the work of Christ is true for us. But He's also sovereign over the affairs of man. He does all that He pleases. All nations and leaders and history and current events are all in His hands. And if we believe Him, Like the Israelites were called to believe Moses, we will move out and trust Him. What do I mean by move out? I just mean live the Christian life. Live a godly Christian life. Be faithful in the small things. God literally tells the Israelites, though, to to move out. Verse 24, He says, Rise up. Set out on your journey. Rise up and do this thing I've called you to do. Begin to take possession." contend with Him in battle. Talking of Sihon. And they did. They trusted God. Unlike their fathers, they did not doubt. And God gave them victory. And this is the third point, is that God takes our efforts and He uses them. And He's with His people to give us victory. Maybe not physical victory, but certainly victory over sin. The power of sin no longer has that control in our lives. There's one point I do need to discuss. I'm going to discuss it now. Probably not return to it, but it's, it's replete throughout the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua as well. Verse 34, we read that the entire people of Sihon were devoted to destruction. It's a Hebrew word, haram. It's, in, well, it's all through Deuteronomy. All through Joshua. Devoted to destruction. What does this mean? You kill men, women, and children. That sounds bad. What is going on here? I'm going to try to explain it. This is more of a holy destruction than just a wanton, kind of out of control killing. It's not that at all. It's a a devoting something to the Lord for destruction. Why? Well, they're entering God's possession. Remember, this is God's possession and He gives the land to them as an inheritance. The land is a, a temple of sorts for the people. Let me work backwards and and show this. First, the Garden of Eden. This is the first land that God gave to mankind. The Garden of Eden. You remember? It was a place of worship. He created the whole earth. And then in the middle of the whole earth, He had Eden. And in the middle of Eden, He had a garden. It's like a temple, isn't it? There's three sections of land there. In the center of Eden was the Garden of Eden. And this is where you see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Kind of the sacraments of worship. It was a holy place on earth for communion with God. This is where God would walk with man. It was created by God and it was given as an inheritance to Adam and Eve as long as they stood in obedience. Adam was told to serve and to guard the land. Two very important Hebrew words because the priests later regarding the temple are called to serve and to guard the temple. Adam's called to serve and to guard the land, the garden. But what happened? The serpent, the embodiment of evil, was allowed to come into the garden, into the Holy of Holies, into the place of worship, of communion with God. And they were cast out. They were cast out to the east. And there was an angel guarding the entrance of the garden from that point on. That land was an important part of communion with God, and it was desecrated. We'll fast forward to the creation of the tabernacles and the temples. These were also places of worship. They were owned by God. God was seen, was thought to have dwelt His feet sitting on the Ark of the Covenant as His footstool. In other words, He was dwelling there. His presence often filled the tabernacle, the temple. It was owned by God. The holy place was his footstool. He would meet the people of God there. It's a place of communion. You see trees all through the temple. Menorah, it looks like a tree. Carvings of trees and fruit everywhere. The priests were called to serve and to guard the temple. The same verbs Adam was told to use guarding the garden. It was a place of God's holy presence. The temple always faced east. The door was to the east. So what's this have to do with promised land? The promised land was God's possession. It was God's property and He gave it to His people. It was the holy possession of God. So upon entering the promised land, that's why Joshua is met by an angel. He enters from the east, remember? And what is it? There's an angel there. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. And he says, stop. Do not enter this place. The place you are standing is holy ground. And then in Joshua chapter 5, before they ever attack anybody, there's a circumcision that happens through the whole camp. Everyone's circumcised and they celebrate Passover. You see the land, the promised land was a place of worship. They're entering the promised land and the first thing they do is worship. The circumcision, the Passover, they're rededicating themselves to God. So devoting A people to destruction makes no sense unless you see the holiness of God. This is His holy land. And He's giving it to His His chosen people. And this isn't just a physical battle they're entering. It's a spiritual battle. And they have to be holy. That's why 11 11 times in Deuteronomy, God says, purge the evil from among you. 12 times in Deuteronomy, He says, devote this people to destruction. Why? Because... The Canaanites were servants of the serpent. The serpent was in the garden. You think, well, that's not not right. They had had 400 years to repent. The the iniquity of the Amorites had not reached its fulfillment. God set a standard and He said, after 400 years, I'm going to destroy you unless you repent. And they didn't. And by all accounts, biblical and extra-biblical, these are the most immoral, wicked, and degenerate people and God was going to eradicate them from the Holy Land. To see the devotion to destruction clearly, you have to see the holiness of God. Sorry to go on, but I don't think I'm going to return to that. We're going to see that again and again in, in Deuteronomy. But that's what's happening here. They're being devoted to destruction because they're bringing such gross wickedness and immorality into this Holy Land, this possession. This possession the people of Israel. Well, Sihon came out in verse 32 and they were devoted to destruction. We left no survivors. So what does this all mean for us? I'll conclude with this. In 1 Peter 1, we read that therefore, because of all the work of God, we're called to live a holy life. We're called to step out to live out our time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In other words, live here before the face of God and to be holy because He is holy. It's the same thing that the Israelites were called to do. To purify themselves by obeying the truth. That's exactly what they did when they entered the promised land before they fought anybody. They sanctified themselves. We all should strive to be like Christ to pursue God, to pursue each other in love. How can you do that? I know people are struggling with sin that has been persistent in their lives for a long time. You may be thinking, I've been stuck in this pattern of sin for way too long. I love my sin. I love pornography. I love my wealth. I love my pleasures and my leisure and my entertainment. I'm not going to give any of that up. I don't even want to. Why should I? I'm comfortable the way I am. I'm forgiven. I don't have to change a thing. But if you look deeper, you know that you should be pursuing God in holiness. You don't know how to do that. Or maybe they're emotional sins. Maybe you've been you've been you've been stuck in some pride or some anger or some bitterness for years. Talk to a woman who said, "You don't know the hurt that I've been walking in my whole life. You don't know what's been done to me, how I've suffered. I'll never be free from any of this. It doesn't seem possible." The biblical answer is actually not difficult to understand. Turn to Jesus. Brother and sister, turn to Jesus. He is faithful. He knows all things. He will never let you down. He'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Say, my sins are too great. I don't know if I'll ever change. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Him again and pray. How? Jesus is revealed in the Scriptures. Open your Bibles. Pray. Trust Him. He entered the the holy place by His own blood. He's the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. He calls us to fix our eyes on Him. Take your anxious thoughts. Take your sinful hearts. Turn them to God in prayer. Remember and trust God's faithfulness in the past. His sovereignty over all creation and over your life as you consider what to do in the future. As you consider moving out from the place you now are stuck in. When there's nowhere else to go, we know we can turn to Jesus Christ. So be obedient today. He's faithful and He loves you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for Your care for us. We're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful that What was true for the Israelites is true for us today. What they saw through a glass dimly, we see much more clearly. And someday we will see You perfectly clear face to face for the first time. Help us to trust Your Word. Help us to pursue You in holiness, to pursue each other in love to trust You as we step out following our commander. Lord, be with us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me and sing our closing hymn, 284.
1: We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other, we will work side by side. And we'll guard each one's dignity and save each one's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father from whom on come. And all praise to Christ Jesus, His only Son. And all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love.
0: Receive this good word as you go out. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And all God's people say, Amen. Go in peace.